0: Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but can't find diverse, talented candidates? You're in luck because we just upgraded our job board and we are here to help you out. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs where you can browse job listings, post your own jobs, and sign up for email updates when new job listings are posted. This week on the job board... The University of Tennessee is looking for a graphic designer in Knoxville, Tennessee. Work & Co. is looking for a resource management coordinator in Brooklyn, New York, and a senior designer in Atlanta, Georgia. MKG is looking for a talented and versatile senior 3D designer in either Brooklyn, New York or Los Angeles, California. American Express is looking for several roles, a design manager, a senior UX designer, a UX writer, and a senior mobile product designer. Most of these roles are remote, but they are also looking for candidates in New York City and Phoenix, Arizona. Posting to our job board starts at just $99, way less than many other design job boards. And for an additional fee, you can have your listing advertised here on the podcast and reach tens of thousands of listeners. Make sure to head over to RevisionPath.com forward slash jobs for more information on these listings and others. And while you're there, click on the Talent tab at the top of the page and check out our new initiative with State of Black Design for companies and job seekers. It's called the 10th Collective. It's free to be a member and you'll get warm introductions to companies that are looking to hire. Get started with us and expand your job search today. RevisionPath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. If you're a black designer listening to this and you're looking for your next opportunity, whether you're at a job right now or you are unfortunately someone that just got laid off recently, I am formally inviting you to join our newest initiative, which is called the 10th Collective. It's a great resource, whether you're looking for work or not, and you'll get connected with companies that are interested in talking to you. And you can decide whether or not you want to talk to them. You can even hide your profile from certain companies or just be anonymous altogether This is a new initiative that we're doing with State of Black Design, and we're really trying to pair up black design professionals that are looking for their next opportunity with companies that are looking to hire them. We get so many companies that ask us, where are the black designers? Do you know anyone who's looking for a job? Blah, 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 blah. And we also get people that are looking for work. And so the 10th Collective is our way to pair y'all up so y'all can have these conversations and make some things happen. Head over to the10thcollective.com to join Or you can check out the link in the show notes. This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Hover. Building your online brand has never been more important, and that begins with your domain name. Show the online community who you are and what you're passionate about with Hover. With over 400-plus domain extensions to choose from, including all the classics and fun niche extensions, Hover is the only domain provider I use and trust. So what are you waiting for? Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. Now for this week's interview, I'm talking with author and design educator, Dr. Leslie Ann Noel, an assistant professor in the Department of Art and Design Studies at North Carolina State University. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do.
1: All right, so my name is Leslie ann Noel, and I'm an assistant professor of design at North Carolina State University. What I do is a hard question because I do a lot of things. Mm-hmm. I guess the main thing is that I teach design, and I work as a design coach in a kind of consulting capacity. And then I do research because I'm at a research university, so I do research. In uh, education, public health, and um, like community engagement, and then uh, I'm an author and an editor, and maybe I'm a convener. I like to bring people together to talk about (laughs) design. And (laughs) yes, so I'll stop there.
0: (laughs) Well, I was going to say you, you know, I'm glad you mentioned author and convener because you did bring so many people together, myself included, for the Black Experience in Design book that published earlier this year.
1: Yeah. You know, so like I'm one of six editors of that book, but I think you see my character and my outlook in the way that I brought people together, I suppose, in the chapters that I, I worked on or like the way when we were preparing the book, I brought people together to write together, you know, because I, I really believe in, uh, I guess, the power of community. And I understand everybody's journey with, with their own kind of imposter syndrome. And so like in that book, one of my key roles was just that, you know, to bring people together and kind of tell people, oh, my goodness, your writing is amazing. All you need to do is change this little thing, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, like if you have that kind of approach, people can become so much more productive. So I think that that's an outlook that I take into a lot of the things that I do.
0: Yeah, I remember those Saturday morning Zoom writing sessions. Those were really helpful.
1: Yeah, I've been doing those uh, maybe for about two and a half years. Oh, wow. um, actually, when when I went to Tulane, so you know, I've worked at about four different universities, and so when I was at Tulane University, I was introduced a little bit more to this culture of like writing together with other people. You know, I joined some of their writing workshops that my colleagues had organized, but then I started either joining other people's writing workshops or running my own. I have to say that is really what has made me really productive writing-wise in the last two years or so, because I write so often. So now it's like I write every day, I suppose.
0: Mm. And now you also recently won a grant too, right? The Outreach and Engagement Incentive Grants?
1: Yeah and so I won a grant at NC State. It's a small grant but it was an exciting proposal to be funded. It's called STEM games against oppression, right? And it was a kind of I don't want to say it was a crazy idea, but it was you know because it, the stakes are low in quotes, you know, because it's 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 a small grant and it's an internal grant, I felt I could actually be very creative in the way that I put together the grant. So this grant combines a lot of things that I'm interested in. So Afrofuturism or speculative futures, games, STEM, and, and teaching STEM in different ways, and of course design. And so for this grant, we're going to work with a group. Oh, and then the other interest is teenage boys. Oh, that sounds weird to say it like that, but you know... <laughs> um, <laughs> My son is 14, and you know, I, I kind of jokingly say to some of my friends that a lot of my research has always been focused at whatever age he's at, mm. right? So with this one, you know, I've been thinking about, okay, how can science be more engaging or more interesting for 14-year-old boys? you know and so that's what this grant is about this project is about you know where these boys are going to kind of discuss society and oppression and all of these things but they're going to make these games and while they're making the games we're going to introduce them to a lot of like design based stem kind of concepts you know making and i don't know what the content is actually yet but you know i'm i'm excited about doing this week which i'm going to start late fall it was just exciting that that I could win that kind of creative grant, you know, to really bring together a lot of the things I was interested in and just, yeah, create this experimental workshop where we're just going to make these fun games. But while we're making these fun games, we're talking about society. We're going to do some 3D printing and AR, VR kind of stuff, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, it's creative And it was exciting for that kind of creative activity to be seen as research. Mm. And so hopefully it's another line of work that I'm going to be able to continue in the future.
0: I mean, it sounds like you've had, I mean, a banner year so far, not just this year, but last year also. I mean, before we started recording, I was just congratulating you on your honorary doctorate that you got from the Pacific Northwest College of Art. Have you kind of had a chance to celebrate all these wins? I mean the doctorate, the book, the grant, like, have you had a chance to celebrate? No.
1: (laughs) No, I haven't, you know? And it's strange to say it, but I know that the pandemic caused a lot of disruption for a lot of people, you know, for me too. But the pandemic also created access in a way that I might not have had access before. You know, Mm. I'm parenting, you know, so like before the pandemic, I was always weighing things and trying to figure out, okay, what can I say yes to? What can I say no to? And most things I would have to say no to because I couldn't go and participate in things, you know, because of my son's school year or something like that. And so what happened with me with the pandemic is that because of these virtual meetings that we do, I could actually say yes to everything, right? (laughs) Which is not, not a strategy that I recommend for a lot of people, but that is, I suppose, what has led to like this this bumper year. That you know, because we're not physically, we weren't physically going to places. I could now suddenly be involved in a lot of projects that I couldn't have been involved in in 2019. But also because of the pandemic, I haven't had time to celebrate, right? Because I want to like now I want to go somewhere and celebrate, <laughs> but I haven't actually been able to. Yeah, it's been an exciting year and. It's an exciting year or a couple of years that have been the result of a lot of collaboration. You know, like, so people might see me, but it's hardly ever only about me. I love working with other people. And so it's a lot of these kinds of collaborations with other people that have created a lot of the results that and the visibility that exists now.
0: I know what you mean about like taking everything as it happens like I swear that summer really I'd say the from the summer of 2020 on to the end of that year I just had like this influx of opportunities that came in and I didn't say no to any of them because I could just do them all from home so I know exactly what you mean by that like not having to to kind of weigh the pros and cons you can do it all because you happen to be in a place where you can do it all.
1: Yeah, and actually, you, you, you reminded me of this other thing, of course, which we have to talk about. you know, as black people, summer 2020 was, was I suppose, a year of like hypervisibility for black designers, and so a, there were a lot more opportunities that would have come, or certainly for me, let me not speak for everybody. You know, a lot more opportunities, many more opportunities came my way after summer 2020. And I didn't have to worry about, could I accept them or not? So that's why I guess I'm visible now and I'm able to to celebrate these things, the book, the honorary doctorate, the, all of these things, because really the visibility for us professionally changed that summer.
0: Yeah, it really did. And, you know, it's interesting because now just two years yeah. later now, really kind of looking back on it, I mean, we're recording this. Right around the time a lot of this stuff happened back in 2020, it's like almost like two years to the day when a lot of this really happened. And it's amazing to see how things have changed just in terms of not only visibility, but also that attention. Like it's really, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but for me, I feel like the attention is pretty much just completely died down. Like companies that said oh, wow. they were going to do stuff, haven't done it yet, or they made a pledge yep. and they never actually went through with it, like that sort of thing.
1: I'm an academic, right? And I guess I've maybe been able to use visibility in a slightly different way Mm -hmm. to other designers, right? So it's like, if then that hyper-visibility of that year and a half or those two years has given me, I I, I don't want to say it like this, but I will say it like this. It's like that has given me permission or validation to do other things. Because then my name became known as a designer who talks about equity or a designer who talks about social justice or, you know, th- that has I'm kind of channeling that into the research that I want to do or the community engagement that I want to do. So it's it's not quite that I'm depending on the companies that said that they would be doing stuff to do this stuff, you know, because I'm in academia. But I'm I am using the little bit of validation that I got during those 18 months then to underpin some of the work that I want to do, right? Whether it's this work about futures and Afrofuturism and how we are combining that with design and world building, right? At least I could use the little bit of name recognition that I created in that time to now continue to do this other work.
0: Mm. Speaking of being an academic, you know, you mentioned teaching at North Carolina State University. How has it been like teaching and going through all this over the past few years?
1: So an interesting thing that I found out during the pandemic <laughs> is that I I love teaching online, which is strange, you know. I enjoy teaching face-to-face or online, but what I really enjoyed about working online, and there were ups and downs, right, but I first taught online in, uh, I think, 2018 or 2019, so just before the pandemic. When we went into that crisis on March 13th, I already had, like, two different experiences to build on. One, I worked at the D School at Stanford in 2018 to 2019, and I did teach some Zoom-based classes then, and then uh, 2019 to 2020, I was at Tulane, and... At Tulane, we had to have like a crisis management plan where we had to practice teaching online before the pandemic. We didn't know the pandemic was coming. It was just part of, you know, like hurricane crisis management. Mm -hmm. But so from those experiences, I was able to draw on. uh, I already had some experience in things like bringing music into the classroom while on the Zoom call or changing up my Zoom backgrounds or, you know, I'd already started kind of using like these kind of warm-ups, warm-up activities to get people comfortable online. And so certainly the early days of the pandemic, I actually really enjoyed teaching online. There's some frustration or not. As a design teacher, one thing that is complicated or difficult to manage is that we don't have the same relationship with materials when we're working remotely, but then we can experiment with other things, you know, like maybe drawing together on a virtual whiteboard or, you know, I did some activities where people had to take photographs and bring them, kind of add them to the virtual whiteboard. So like, I really enjoyed that. I think that the last semester that was kind of hybrid was the worst point of the pandemic you know, because, you know, you can't do both at the same time well. So I, I really wanted to be either online or in person, but not both, you know, because there are these other issues that people hadn't thought about, like maybe we can't hear properly, you know, when we're in that kind of format with both. Or um, we, our classrooms suddenly became very accessible, During the pandemic, and then when we went back to this kind of strange hybrid space, they became inaccessible again. You know, like I had one or two students who just couldn't come to the classroom anymore because of accessibility issues like stairs and and stuff like that, right? But what else can I say about the experience? The accessibility issue, you know, the pandemic broad accessibility, or let me not say the pandemic, but teaching remotely made some classes and design classes accessible in ways that they might not have been before. You know, like, throughout the pandemic, I taught hearing impaired people in, in like, many different settings, and I never had a lot of engagement with the deaf community before the pandemic, right? And, and so, you know, that has always been something that has concerned me as we kind of go back to business as usual, you know, what about all the accessibility that we created? You know, where's it going to go?
0: Now, you mentioned, you know, North Carolina State University being a research university. Can you talk a bit about what research you're working on?
1: Yeah. Well, maybe first I'm going to talk about one thing that I teach that might be tied to research. So I teach a class called Contemporary Issues in Art and Design. And it is a class about well, contemporary issues, yes, but it's like equity and social justice. And that's kind of like one of the areas that underpins some of the the engagement because we do research and engagement and the public engagement that I'm interested in is very equity and social justice focused. So out of that class, I've been doing writing that's related to the content of that class. So like about race, gender, disability, all of these oppression issues. And I'm starting to bring that into the research that I have to say I want to do, right? Because I'm a new new assistant professor at NC State, so not all of it has started. But there are like three areas of research that I plan to continue working in, right? And so the first one is tied to education, And it is about using design and design principles and design pedagogy, you know, the way that we teach and learn design and using that to make STEM education more accessible. I see this also as a a justice issue. So that's why I said it's tied to that that class that I teach. So when I was at Tulane, we started to do this, like this tiny experiment where we turned a math class into a design class. And Mm -hmm. that's like a little bit of an example of where I see that research going, right? Where I worked with a professor, a math professor at Tulane called Marie Dalle, and she taught me about something called ordinary differential equations, which I knew nothing about before. <laughs> <laughs> but when I did a little bit of research, I found out it is about actually predicting the future. She might not describe it as like as that. And mathematicians might not describe it as that, but, you know, as someone who's interested in futures, that's the thing that I grabbed onto. Oh, this equation is to predict the future. And then we turned the math class into a design class about, I guess, predicting the future and then using the equation to somehow support the prediction, right? And I'm playing with making... STEM curricula, like really exciting, engaging, future focused, and critical at the same time. So maybe overlaying a lot of things, but it is a track that I've been following for a little while. In my PhD research, I worked with children who were in fourth grade. And at that time, they had to discuss society and the world around them and then take action through design and i'm i'm really just continuing that research and saying well okay you're going to discuss society yes take action through design but we're going to make the stem principles that are attached to the action that you're taking a little bit more explicit so that's one area of research that i that i'm involved in another area of research and again this is tied to another collaborator again at Tulane. uh, This is Alessandra Bassano. And in this area of research, we are looking at how can we use the way that designers think, talk, express themselves, the way designers use materials, you know, how can we use all of these things to support patients or members of the public to talk about their public health experience? more or, you know, more clearly, right? So like we did some workshops where, for example, we gave people prototyping materials and then we asked them to make something related to their pandemic experience and then use that thing that they had made as a prompt to continue talking, you know, to open up and talk about issues related to public health, right? Or, you know, could we get people to use photographs that they had taken as a prompt to get people to talk more about their public health experience in the pandemic. So that's another area of research which is related to patient-centered outcomes research, which is a whole area of of research in public health. But it is using design methods and these design ways of thinking to support that patient-centered outcomes research. And then the third area of research that I'm into is civic and social innovation where we are building capacity within cities to get more people within the city or within from the public to go through the design process together to address social issues right so it's civic or social engagement through design so i mean Maybe I explain all three badly, but, you know, these are the three areas that I'm interested in. STEM education, public health or patient-centered outcomes, and civic and social engagement, and all through design.
0: I think it's it's really interesting that you are doing this, you know, sort of as you mentioned, all through design. I mean, even the, the first part that you mentioned about math really kind of struck me because my degree is in math. Mm. And so you start talking about differential equations. That took me... Right back to my 2002 differential equations class at Morehouse with my professor, (laughs) Dr. Bozeman, and him talking about how, you know, a lot of engineers and stuff, they use differential equations for like futures predictions. Like, for example, if you want to predict the spread of an oil spill, you Uh would use differential equations to try to figure that out. Like you're, you're predicting it. You don't know for sure, but with calculus being the rate of change across a certain period of time or across a certain distance, differential equations helps you to try to like chart those paths and Mm -hmm. stuff. So you're right on with that. (laughs) Certainly. I think it's, it's really just interesting that you're able to do all this and tie design into all of it.
1: Yeah. And you know, like it's about access and agency and creating access and agency through design, but I'll just share like a, a a little bit of feedback that the professor I was working with that she gave after we did that math class that was the design class. She said, you know, there were different students engaged in the class today, and that's interesting. You, you know, because like there's some students you just expect they they're gonna love everything about math, but you know, she was able. She said when we turned the math class into the design class, it just became, you know, there were different people who were involved because there were people who were involved because maybe they were acting, you know, as they presented the future thing scenario that they had predicted or, you know, and, and so I, I think can we use design to get people engaged in different ways around STEM education, public health and, and social innovation? These are the three little pockets I'm interested in.
0: Yeah. And I, you know, and I, I have to say, I think that's important for, designers now to really think about. So much, I feel like design within the past maybe decade or so has really largely been product focused and UX focused. I think as, you know, certainly technology and tech companies and social media and stuff have started to really become these pervasive entities in our lives. There are so many designers now that are just getting into product or UX or something, but not thinking about other areas of practice where they could use their design, you know, like the stuff that you're talking about with social innovation, other sort of non-product-oriented design work, community engagement, speculative futures, which is is related to an article that you just published recently. Like, I think it's important to show that these options are options.
1: These options are options. And then also we create these options, you know, like, there's something that I say all the time. So, you know, Someone's going to listen to this interview and say, oh my God, she's saying this again. But, you know, when I was finishing up undergrad, you know, just before the end, our professor said something like, you make yourselves relevant, right? You know, he kind of said, nobody needs, I did industrial design, and he says, nobody needs any industrial designers anywhere, but you are the one who kind of make yourself relevant to the conversations that everyone is having so it's like we make these opportunities for ourselves so we don't only have to talk about product and tech there is work for us as designers in education in uh, I don't know even like project management you you know because like to be a good designer you, you know how to manage things and manage time and manage people and so you know these skills kind of don't have to stay within the design world. We can take these skills and move them to other sectors where the opportunity mightn't be so obvious.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Well said. Also at North Carolina State University, you're co-chair of the Pluriversal Design Special Interest Group, which is part of the Design Research Society. Talk to me about that.
1: All right. So that's an exciting little research group. So the design research Society is supposed to be the largest these largest professional organization for design research in the world actually, and they do an annual conference there's one gonna that's gonna happen in June or would have happened by the time this is so they do a, a conference every two years and I've been a member of this association for like about five years right and so When I used to go to the annual conference, I used to be very struck that nobody was discussing stuff that I wanted to talk about, (laughs) right? And when I say I wanted to talk about, I mean, like, as a Black woman from Trinidad and Tobago, it doesn't have to be about race, I suppose. But, you know, as somebody from the global South, I found there was no one talking about design in ways that I really wanted to talk to. But if in the conference, I met someone from Brazil, from Nigeria, from any other place other than Europe or North America, I found that we started to have more overlap of issues. And so we created this, this research group, myself and my colleague Renata marx Town, we created this little research group to focus on issues in design um, from a non-European and non-North American perspective, mm-hmm. right. Also, issues related to maybe challenging, yeah, challenging the dominant narrative in design. You know, challenging that kind of white Euro-American perspective in design. You know, and and so this group became a group to talk about these types of issues within this design research society so it was like where could you find stories about practice from designers in South Africa and in India for example you know where so this became the group where we could have these kind of multicultural or cross cultural conversations mm-hmm. in a way where you know, in design, or you know, very often these kinds of conversations come with a little bit of a hierarchy where it's kind of assumed that the person who is from America or from Europe has more authority or more knowledge than the person from wherever else. And, and this group challenges a lot of that kind of conversation. So we've been around since 2018. It's a vibrant group where the most vibrant thing that we do is actually a book club Where we focus on designer, well, we focus on who designers should be reading, authors that designers should be reading that are not from Europe or North America. People from within the group suggest people. So, like one week we had work by a Puerto Rican feminist, Aurora Levens Morales. Another week we had someone talking about, well, N.K. Jemison, who is American, but is not part of that dominant, kind of like white male perspective. So we bring all of these authors that we think people need to hear from Mm -hmm. um, and talk about that and talk about how their work affects design. And then we share stories about practice, we share research. And it is a group then that is focused on decolonizing design but not only talking about decolonizing design, because, you know, a lot of people talk about decolonizing design, but it remains as just talk. And in this group, we're asking people to share practice and share stories and kind of like, what are you doing that is not focusing on like maybe more traditional ways of doing design? How are you shaking things up in your own design practice? And -hmm. can you share this with us?
0: I don't know. You mentioned that about decolonizing design and it reminded me about, well, one, I know Dr. Dory Tunstall is doing a lot of work and kind of driving conversations around that. I remember, I think this might have been maybe a couple of years ago, there was some pushback from another black designer about even using that term decolonizing design. I believe it was, uh, oh my goodness, I think it was Saki Mafundikwa from Zimbabwe. Oh. Mm -hmm. He had had written this piece for AIGA's Eye on Design, kind of pushing back on that term. I think thinking of colonialism in the more sort of imperialistic sense, particularly with him being African, sort Mm -hmm. of pushing back on that term. Like, can you really say you're decolonizing design as an American? Right.
1: Right. So that's a good point of view. You know, actually, like we had a conversation when I say a conversation, I mean, like. Our group, we led like a, a discussion a few months ago where we, we actually said that you probably should be in existential crisis if you're a designer to be, you know, because you might want to talk about something like decolonizing design, but actually design is modernist and colonial. And, you know, so how do we decolonize this, mm-hmm. right? And when we decolonize it, is it still going to be design? Even that's going to be part of the future existential crisis. It might not be designed when we reach whatever place we think decolonization is. And, and, you know, it's not actually a place, it's a journey. And the work that I've been doing, you know, like I guess my step towards this whole decolonizing work is I am, you know, every issue that I look at I keep asking myself, well, what is my perspective as person X, which, okay, you know, to be really reductionist is, is okay, this Black woman as a from the Caribbean or Black mother from the Caribbean. And so that informs a lot of the issues that I am focusing on. And I think that that's my small step towards kind of decolonizing, you know, the space where I'm practicing as a designer and as a design researcher in my very authentic way, you know, I don't want to say a, a an authentic way. It's my way, you know, and I encourage other people to do that, you know, bring your way into the process. And I see that us moving towards kind of decolonizing the work, right? Because, you know, like a few years ago, I would th- maybe like five, six years ago, I like really thought about how I would see students kind of struggling to fit in or kind of struggling to replicate what they thought good design was. So I travel a lot, or I used to travel a lot, but I went to a design school in India. And at that point, you know, at at first I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting, you know, to see the similarity in the design work between Brazil and Trinidad and India. But actually, on the other hand, I, I found it really disturbing, you know, that, all of these students would have come into design school with their vibrant, vibrant identities and maybe leave with this more homogenized outlook. And I think that like my step towards decolonizing design is making sure that that doesn't happen, right? Yeah yeah, getting people to really bring themselves back into the design process
0: Now, we've talked a lot about your work, but I really want to kind of dive more into. Your origin story, because you've you've sort of dropped some little breadcrumbs here and there about going to India and Brazil and stuff like that. I know you're originally from Trinidad and Tobago, so let's start there. Tell me about about growing up there. What was your childhood like?
1: Yeah, I grew up from Trinidad. Who might be listening to this? I'm from Diamond Vale, Tobago, Martin. <laughs> and I mean, you know, I had like probably like a really kind of ordinary kind of middle class kind of existence, And I was a middle child. So, you know, growing up in my sister's shadow and then kind of the baby after me. But, you know, you probably want to know about, okay, design in Trinidad. And people in Trinidad don't see this, but Trinidad is a very designerly place, right? Because we have a carnival culture. So it means that you are talking and thinking about design every year you know and it's a very you know like fashion conscious place or you know so like there's a design language in trinidad that i think people use from lily you know and and at different festivals you know maybe they're talking about design like with regard to the way bamboo structures are made for some of the festivals and things like that you know so there's that designerly sensibility i think all the time The first design that I remember is like in the equivalent of sixth grade, which is like four one. I remember designing maybe my first carnival costume and doing some work with lettering, which I still had. I still have somewhere. I saw the the image the other day, but I don't, I, I can't say that I know when I made the real conscious choice The design would have been it, right? But I guess maybe somewhere between 10th grade and 11th grade, you know, this was the path that I joined. You know, I became a designer in quotes from that age, you know, became really interested in things like typography. You know, I did a lot of like book covers in school. I remember one design exam where I did a pop-up book with Christopher Columbus. So maybe this was me already challenging the world, right? So Christopher Columbus was sailing across the ocean. And then when you pulled the little tab, he fell off the flat earth or something like that. But I always thought that design was exciting. You know, I went to a high school where art and design were really considered respectable professions or, you know, respectable areas. My parents probably wondered if I would have been able to pay for myself, you know, survive as a designer. But my parents were really very open-minded and maybe focused on making sure that their children felt empowered. So when I wanted to study in Brazil, nobody ever told me no. So actually, maybe I have to go backtrack a little bit and say how I ended up in Brazil. But I couldn't study design in the way that I wanted to in Trinidad and uh, again, my parents, because they spoke a language that was very open, you know, they kind of said, well, you could study anywhere in the world as long as we don't have to pay for it, <laughs> right? <laughs> <And> <laughs> that's a good challenge to give 17-year-old or 18-year-old child, right? Because I then started to just look for places around the world that I could study and my parents wouldn't have to pay for it. Because what they were saying is that if we have to pay for it, we are going to tell you where you have to study. But if you want to study anywhere, then you find the opportunity. And so eventually I ended up starting school in Bahia in Brazil. So I started graphic design in Bahia, in the Federal University of Bahia. But then eventually I moved to a town called Curitiba in the south of Brazil, and I did industrial design. And I spent a really long time in Brazil. (laughs) But it was... An amazing, I actually spent like six years in Brazil, Mm -hmm. an amazing six years where I was just able to grow kind of like without family influence, without, I just really became very independent and very worldly. I lived in a community, a university community that was very politically conscious and politically active so like, my interest in equity and social justice and really started then with my roommates who were in social sciences and psychology, and because we didn't have those conversations in design. Those conversations were happening on other floors in the building that I, I studied in, but those fueled me and my, my worldview. From Brazil, I went back to Trinidad in the late 90s, and then kind of like almost immediately started working as a kind of design consultant with agencies that were somehow tied to export. So within Trinidad, I worked as a consultant with our trade and export agency for a few years. Then I worked with, there was a regional agency, Caribbean Export. I worked with them also as a consultant. Then I worked in East Africa in different places, Uganda, Tanzania, Kenya, also as a consultant in trade and export. And I was also adjunct faculty at the same time at the University of the West Indies in design. But I suppose it's a little bit of that, that work with the export agencies, because this is kind of like development, international development kind of work. Mm -hmm. That work encouraged me to ask questions that eventually led me to do a PhD. And there was pressure from the university as well, um, because I eventually moved from being an adjunct to full-time and you probably know how this academic thing is that you probably need a PhD if you're going to stay in academia but so it was both the internal pressure from the university as well as this pressure from not pressure these questions I was asking about the work we were doing as designers working in the area of development that eventually led me to do a PhD because I I just thought that we needed to be asking harder questions, different questions, you know, really about like, how do we we engage communities? You know, what's our role as designers when we're doing this work with with people and trying to tell them, this is the kind of product you need to make to get more sales and export. You You know, I just thought that we needed to reflect more on the work that we were doing And I took a step back and I started to apply to PhD programs in the mid, oh, I don't even know how to call that decade, in 2015, the decade with no name. (laughs) (laughs) How did I end up here in the States? I actually got a a Fulbright Award. NC State and the Fulbright Association have a good relationship, so... It was a school that was recommended to me. I knew about the work that NC State was doing in education and design education, and that's kind of how I ended up through with the Fulbright Award. And because of NC State's reputation, I ended up applying here, and um, and coming here, and really enjoying the program. You know, I I spent three years here. I did not actually pursue the questions that I was thinking about pursuing, you know, where I was thinking about design and development. You know, because I was interested in education as well. My PhD is more tied to design education and developing critical design curriculum. So design curricula where people are asking hard questions about society. That was what my PhD research was about. But yeah, I spent 3 years here, then I spent a year at Stanford and 2 years at Tulane. And now I'm back here at NC State. So I don't know if that's an origin story, but that's a little bit of a story.
0: I mean, that's me. that's that's quite a journey. I, I think what I kind of want to pull from from that is what drove you to really kind of I guess make these big jumps, not just geographically but but culturally. I mean you're going from trinidad to brazil then from brazil back to trinidad and then from trinidad to the states so there's that but then also it seems like you're also sort of leveling up educationally in and vocationally i should say in each situation like you're going to undergraduate in brazil you're pursuing your master's and working in trinidad now you're pursuing your phd in the states like what was driving you during that time like what was really sort of fueling that ambition
1: Oh my goodness. I don't even know. (laughs) Well, so what got me to Brazil, or, or maybe I'll give a kind of umbrella statement. I've had people around me who have made me feel that I could do anything. So it was like the openness of that conversation with my parents. So that challenge that they gave me that got me to go to, to Brazil, you know, that got me to find Brazil as a place to go to, right? Or, you know, little things that I would have heard from that professor in undergrad that made me just feel fearless. For m- most of my adult or professional life, I have felt that I could do anything. I have to say, I'm grateful to the people around me who have made me feel like I can do anything. I guess the leveling up is just kind of like what had to be done. That was like part of the opportunity. I, w- I wouldn't really have come to the States maybe without doing the PhD. But again, the people around me just made me think, well, okay, of course you can go and get a, a PhD. Why wouldn't you be able to get a PhD? You know, or mm-hmm, of course mm-hmm. you can go to Brazil. Why wouldn't you be able to go to Brazil? So, you know, like, I've had that kind of empowering language around me all the time. And that has opened up my world. I really would say though that that I credit my parents for giving me the openness to think of going to Brazil. And I will say to any parent who might be listening to this, that changed my whole outlook on life because learning a new language, learning a new culture, That kind of removed all of the barriers on the world, right? You know, just because I was able to do that, encourage other parents, you know, push your children to kind of open up their worlds a little bit more. That open world will just continue to take you to other places. So, of course, Brazil, that experience of going back and forth between Trinidad and Brazil for six years made it seem like going between Trinidad and Tanzania for a few months or Trinidad and Kenya or you know it was just another thing like that all of this travel and getting to know new cultures and new people and and understanding that the world happens differently for other people, you know, and and that curiosity of wanting to know more about how other people experience the world. all of that started because of that very open experience I had, I think, in undergrad.
0: and what is it that sort of keeps you motivated and inspired these days?
1: There are a few things. I'm still very excited about conversations with other people in other parts of the world and how, They live and think and do. And so, you know, like the pluriversal design group is a little bit of that. You know, how do we create a space where we can really listen to how other people, whoever other is, how people do things differently? So that's one thing that continues to inspire me, just my curiosity about other people in the world. And so that also affects the way that I do research, you know, because that's why I'm interested, I suppose, in anthropology or anthropological methods or ethnographic methods, you know, because I have that curiosity about the world and people. What continues to inspire me as well is that, well, this is where we get wishy-washy, I suppose, you know, because, because I think like my son and my niece and my nephew, and I'm like, okay, so what is the world that they're going into? I suppose that's why I've always had this one area of research that has focused on like child-centered methods or questions that I think are from a child's point of view or questions about making things better for other children, you know, so that other children don't have to deal with some of the legacy systems that we have that don't work. I've been very interested in redesigning or challenging things that we think just have to be the way they are, right? And so like one example I'll, I'll give is, we have an exam in Trinidad called the Common Entrance Exam. And that is actually one of the things that started my PhD research. When I changed direction, you know, I was like, but why do we even have to have that exam? You know, and that's, that's why I started to do that research. So, so that's something that continues to inspire me. You know, how can we change the things that don't work? And that's also tied to my interest in futurism or Afrofuturism or, you know, because it's how do we build new things and new worlds and new systems? You know, how do we use design to do all of that? So I'm very interested in first having these critical conversations so that we could see clearly the things that don't work. Because sometimes we've been like so brainwashed that we don't actually see the systems that don't serve us. So, you know, everything that I do has to start off with that kind of conversation where we actually talk about, okay, what are the things that are wrong? But then we don't just stay in that space of talking about the things that are wrong. We try to kind of move beyond that and take action through design. So, I mean, that kind of social change also is something that motivates me as well so i guess internally it's a cu- curiosity and then externally it's about changing systems and fighting oppression and social justice and equity and stuff like that
0: what advice would you want to tell any designers out there listening who might be feeling a bit lost right now as to like what to do with their future and i'm, I'm asking this because I've had several people write into the show, particularly over the past two years, that maybe they just got out of design school through the pandemic. They got a job, but it's not what they wanted because they're working from home, which is not really an ideal place for them to work because this is their first job. And in some cases, it's their first apartment. And then there's also people that have been working at places. I mean, we're recording this right now in mid-June, but there's been a huge slate of like design and layoffs in the tech community over the past, you know, couple of weeks now. And some people have just written into the show, just wanting some advice. Like, I don't know what to do now with like my future. Like what advice would you tell them?
1: I'm not actually going to give people like the job advice. Uh-huh. I'm going to ask them about the non-job stuff, right. Or my advice might be about the non-job, you know? So one thing is about finding community or creating community. So, you know, because, Your job might be dead end. Your job might be fantastic, but maybe you're lonely in your job. But it's like we need other people to go along this journey with us, right? And, uh, you know, they make the process more interesting, more exciting. They might validate us as we do the work. And so, like, for me personally, like, when we created that pluriversal Designs group, That kind of changed, again, like my outlook on the world or, you know, because my group was also then feeding me and my work, you know? So like for people who might be a little bit lost, I would definitely advise them to make sure that they're not just doing this alone, right? And find these groups, you know, whether it's there's a meetup group about the area of design that you're interested in or... Groups probably exist or you can create the group, but you don't find that community. And then the other bit of advice I would give people is figure out what your passion project is so that you aren't only pouring your energy or your creative energy into the work that your employer is giving you. There must be a side creative project that is also feeding you and maybe that's the project that you'll get known for later on, right? Or, you know, maybe that's going to be the thing that's really going to eventually take over and pay your bills and whatnot, right? But I think that for me, professionally, those two things of making sure that they've always been communities of support, and then making sure that I'm doing work that is very, very fulfilling and satisfying, even if that's not the work that the employer is giving me. I think that those two components of of me and my life and my work have been really important. And so that's what I'd recommend to young designers. You know, find that stuff. And then the professional work, work hopefully will get better because of those two buckets. And then maybe a third bit of advice I would give to young designers is just about, well, this is tied to the community thing, of just, I don't want to, networking sounds crass or crude or, but, you know, make sure that you are, yes, meeting people and telling them about their work and, you know, so that you're not invisible. I think that that's also, yeah, really important to be talking to new people often about the the work that you do. And that's going to lead into other opportunities in the future.
0: What do you appreciate the most about your life right now?
1: I like gardening. (laughs) Okay. um, Yeah, but actually, so because I talk about design in a very abstract way now, you know, because I I teach about kind of like about the design process and maybe helping people to see the design process. This means that I now see the design process as I'm gardening, or as I'm cooking, or you know, as I'm dressing in the morning, and and all of this. I do appreciate, you know, like I really do love choosing where I'm going to put that gladioli bulb in my garden or choosing which salt I'm going to use in as I cook dinner. You know, I think there's a real ordinariness <laughs> in my life now that I'm happy for. I'm very appreciative for because i have you know, because I move a lot, I've had like a lot of chaos, I suppose, or, you know, like kind of been in constant flux. So what I really appreciate now is not being in flux like that, you know, and just being able to relax and watch the plants grow.
0: (laughs) Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like, what kind of work would you love to be doing?
1: So I really want to continue doing the civic and social innovation work that I'm doing, I do some of this work with a foundation and I'd love to do more of it with other cities. So so what I do is I work with a city for about 9 months and we address some issue that the city has has been interested in, right? And I really enjoy that work. You know, I love working with design students at the College of Design, but I also love working with people who are using design for the first time. And so in five years time, I hope to be doing more either public engagement or research around uh, like design for social innovation. And, you know, working with cities that I'm close to, whether here in North Carolina or back in Trinidad or in the Caribbean. But I really like that kind of public design work that is done with community members and maybe local government representatives, you know, and and having people co-create solutions to the issues that they're concerned about. So I hope to be doing that, more of that in five years' time.
0: Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more information about you, about your work? Like, where can they find all of that online?
1: So I'm on a lot of different platforms, but actually LinkedIn is probably the best place for people to find me. You know, they just have to look for my name, Leslie ann Noel, L-E-S-L-E-Y, that's the thing. And so if they want to know more about the general work that I'm doing, LinkedIn is the place as an academic, like I'll repost some of the academic articles that I've written on ResearchGate. And then I'm also pretty active on Twitter, actually. But, you know, if people Google me, they'll find me on some platform that they can reach out to me. And, and I actually do respond to people generally. So but LinkedIn is is generally the easiest place to find me.
0: Sounds good. Well, Leslie and Noel, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a long time coming. I think I feel like you and I have intersected quite a few times over the past few years. So I'm really glad to finally have you on the show, not just to, you know, of course, share your story and your research, but I think to, to inspire, I mean, so much of what you're doing is about pursuing your own like curiosities and interests. And I think that's something sometimes as designers, we tend to lose sight of, especially like if you're like working in product, I hate to say that, but like if you're working in UX or product, (laughs) you, you kind of, it's hard to kind of see the forest for the trees sometimes because what you're doing is so laden to, a specific thing. Whereas you've been able to really, and it sounds like at least you've been able to indulge a lot of your, your creativity across many different passions throughout your career, which is just super inspiring to hear about. I'm sure, of course, we'll hear about you now for years and years to come. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for the invitation. And I mean, I hope that at least this conversation is able to help people see that they could kind of, craft a bit of a path that that works for them you know even when the path looks like it's been clearly marked you know they could kind of shake up the path a little bit and do yeah a little bit of what they want hopefully <laughs> so thank you for the invitation
0: big big thanks to dr leslie Ann noel and of course thanks to you for listening you can find out more about Dr. Noel and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Transcripts are provided by Brevity and Wit. This episode of Revision Path is also brought to you by Hover. Building your online brand has never been more important, and that begins with your domain name. Show the online community who you are and what you're passionate about with Hover. With over 400-plus domain extensions to choose from, including all the classics and fun niche extensions, Hover is the only domain provider I use and trust. Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. So what did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about the podcast overall? You know, we'd love to hear from you. Don't be a stranger. If you're just out there listening and you want to get in touch with us, please do so. You can hit us up on Twitter or you can hit us up on Instagram. Just search for Revision Path, like all one word, Revision Path. Or you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, on Amazon Music, or on Spotify. The more people you tell about the show, the bigger we become and the further we can extend our reach to talk to black designers, developers, artists and other digital creatives from all over the world. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.